Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Episcopal Church in Vero Beach, Florida. We are glad to have you join us. Anglican 101, a history of the Anglican Communion, led by Father Christopher Rodriguez, is a dynamic and educational study that vividly teaches how the Anglican Church was established, beginning with the Old Testament and continuing through present day. Okay, so we're going to get started. There's some handouts coming around if you need them. Uh, raise your hand if you don't have one, and we'll get it to you. Um, Today we're going to talk about the Reformation, and we're going to talk about the Reformation uh, with a very narrow focus, and that is this, the, the Reformation as it relates to the start of the Church of England as a separate entity from the Roman Catholic Church. Why do I bring that up? Because uh, if you spend any time as an Anglican, somebody at some point is going to say to you, well, your church was started by a guy who left his wife and killed all of his spouses. Anybody ever heard that before? Never. Henry the what? Henry VIII, who was a pretty bad guy. However, we're going to talk about the Reformation, what caused it in England. It's pretty different than the Continental Reformers and how this, this uh, papist folklore of Henry VIII, I mean, I'm being funny, um, how that's not really the, the true story. We're going to get into, dive into the actual details of that today and talk about the Reformation in the Church of England, which is different from the Reformation on the continent by substantial margin. Make sense, everybody? So we're not going to talk about Lutheranism and Calvinism and all the different aspects of Protestant theology, which are interesting. I may actually do a class called Anglican 102 someday, which would be sort of a dive in, a deep dive into Anglican theology from the Reformation, but not today. Is that clear, everybody? Okay, so your handout does not has this sheet as the third one, not the second one, but we're going to dive into it first. And that is, I want to review what we talked about from last week, which is uh, that the, um, the, we talked about the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, right, existing prior to the church in England and, and existing as a unified whole up until when? Anybody remember? 1054, right? So the church, the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, you'll hear me uh, use this acronym, OHCA, was a visible unity. It un was one thing. It was actually, when they said we are a one, I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, it was a real organized thing. Um, in 1054, it fractured, right? And I'm just, we'll call it East and West. The Western church is the Roman Catholic church. The Eastern church is known as the Orthodox church. But the point I want you to understand, it's crucially important is when we recite the creeds, and you say, I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, when that creed was written in 325 AD, that was a political reality and an ecclesiological reality. Does that make sense? So it's not anymore in a physical sense, maybe it is. Uh, but anyway, just so you know the con the, the, uh, the, uh, what it would look like when we started. So that's that. Um, and I, the church in England began to come under more and more control from the Church of Rome, even before the split. If you remember, recall, I mentioned how the church in England, and I'm saying the church in England because it was the, that group that were in England, right? The Church of England as a distinct thing has not started yet. We're going to get to that today. But the church in England came under increasing control by the Roman church. And in the year 664, uh, the Roman church decided that they were going to essentially a call the shots for the church in England. Of course, in 1054 is known as the what? The great, the great schism, okay? 
And then that's when the East and the West split, a situation which remains even today. And then if you recall from last week, what I showed you was that at, this, at the Great Schism in 1054, East and West divided. Remember that branch theory I showed you? And then today, we're going to see at the Reformation, it can, the Western Church continues to fragment, actually for the exact same reasons, which would be papist claims for supremacy and all sorts of things. Is that clear, everybody? I'm just trying to paint a big, broad picture here because we don't have a lot of time. So, but the one thing which I'm going to come back to over and over again is that the branches of the Catholic faith, whether it's in the Eastern Church or the Western Church or the Anglican Church or whatever, are, the branches are held together by something called apostolic succession, which is the tactile laying on of hands from bishops to priests all the way through history. Uh, a few weeks ago, I showed you a graphic which had the apostolic succession chart of the Americas, and actually, Bishop Brewer. Uh, did you, you, yeah, it's cool. Uh, so that's the important thing. So in, when I, if you recall, in the very first session, I made the point that God works through covenants that are unilateral covenants that maintain themselves despite human sin and brokenness. I would submit to you today that the, that the apostolic succession is the guarantee of, his, of sacramental validity in spite of human sin and brokenness. Does that make sense? So even though you have priests which are wayward, despicable fellows, which are a smattering here and there, uh, or a clergy which are bishops which go off the res, which happens, uh, apostolic succession guarantees that the sacraments are valid. Is that clear? So it's, got, it's God's insurance policy, uh, if you will, of his people being cared for even despite failures in leadership you might say. Now, the other thing is, you say, well, what about people that have false teaching? What about heresy? What about people that lead people astray? That's another matter, right? That is supposed to be controlled by bishops disciplining other bishops. That's a little more complicated, as you might guess. But in the meantime, uh, apostolic succession guarantees that the sacraments you receive from a priest in apostolic succession are valid, no matter whether they believe it or not. Is that clear? Hugely important point. It's actually one of the main things which makes Anglicans different from every other Protestant group, except for a, a, a little small group of Lutherans that also, also hold to that. Any questions on that so far? Is that all crystal clear? All right, let's dive in. So today we're going to talk about the Protestant Reformation. Um, one thing to remember is that the Protestant Reformation started in England before it actually started on the continent. The continent, meaning Europe, uh, the Protestant Reformation was caused by you know, Martin Luther, the 95 Theses, all these different things. In England, it was a little bit different. In England, the Reformation uh, was earlier because it wasn't really a theological movement at first, it was a political one. I'm gonna say that again. The, the Reformation in England was not initially a theological movement, it was a political movement. And why do I say that? Well, he, again, what caused the Great Schism in 1054? Anybody remember? The Bishop of Rome asserting changes in the date of Easter and asserting that he could make changes to the creed. Remember that? The Bishop of Rome making unilateral decisions binding on the whole church. Did you hear that? That's what caused the Great Schism in 1054. In the Church of England, 549 years, or 500 years later after this, in 1549 or so, the Bishop of Rome began to assert authority of the, over the church in England over and against the king. 
So for example, uh, the, the, uh, there's a guy named, uh, the king of England named John Lankland was deposed by the Pope in the year 1213. And you say, well, wait, who's in charge here, <laughs> right? Is the king in charge or is the Bishop of Rome in charge? That, so Rome begins to uh, require taxation from England to Rome. It's called the Peter's Pence. It was a tax. Uh, Rome begins to assert authority and things in England. And Rome begins to actually appoint bishops in England that don't even live there. So, for example, the Archbishop of Canterbury was appointed by the Bishop of Rome, right? The, arch, the bishops would be appointed of, say, uh, I don't know, any York or whatever, appointed by the, by the Bishop of Rome to England, and they would serve there as bishops in England, even though they weren't English people. And they might not even live there. So, for example, you might have a bishop who lived in France, but he was the Bishop of Chester, okay? Appointed by the Bishop of Rome. Do you see the problem here? Okay, so this begins to unfold, it begins to unravel, and people don't like that kind of stuff, if you understand it. And remember back to what I said before in the beginning of the church, the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, bishops' decisions were made in council by all the bishops together, right, the Nicene Creed, for example, and bishops were appointed typically by election or by the monarch. Now, I gotta speak to this for a second, too. And there's something in in the history of Europe and elsewhere called the divine right of kings. Anybody ever heard that before? Okay, now this sounds weird to us, but we're also post-enlightenment, post-revolutionary war people. Uh, it sounds weird to us, but this is actually the way people thought back in the mid-14th mid, uh, century and earlier. That the king, listen, the king in England or the king of France or the king of Germany, the Holy Roman Empire, they were all, the king was in charge of the temporal affairs of the church. Okay? So the king was in charge, and he was in charge, it wasn't just a political thing, he was in charge of the temporal affairs of the church based upon Paul's admonition in scripture that all people in positions of authority are placed there by God. So the idea being that the king, the monarch, was enthroned to represent the people, and he was the one who would pick the bishops in his own jurisdiction. Does that make sense? You ever seen, you ever seen a, uh, a monarch, a new monarch, when they're crowned? Who crowns them? In England, the Archbishop of Canterbury, right? So the, the, uh, the king of England, or the king of France, or the Holy Roman Empire, the king of the Holy Roman Empire, those people were all in charge of the temporal affairs of the church, including the appointment of bishops. So, for example, if you're in England and you're the king of England and you say, you know, Bill Shanklin is a priest and Father Shanklin is doing a bang-up job and you decide to appoint him to be the bishop of Staffordshire or whatever, the king would make that decision. What's beginning to occur between 1054 and 1549-ish is the pope, the bishop of Rome, is beginning to assert political and temporal authority over the church in England. Does that make sense, everybody? It's really important. Just like not just like, but similarly to back in 1054, that the Bishop of Rome is making unilateral claims to jurisdiction, which he did not have prior to that. Any questions about this? This is, this is why the Reformation in England is different from the Reformation on the continent at this stage. So, uh, what are the causes of the Reformation in England? Um, kind of the same stuff as the Reformation on the continent is a political loss of confidence in Rome, uh, corruption, um, the Peter's Pence, taxes upon the citizens, the monasteries, which were 
Uh, well, we won't get into what the problem was there, but you can use it, leave it to your imagination. And then uh, the selling of indulgences. An indulgence is a way that you would pay money to get somebody out of purgatory. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church um, believes in something called, or I guess still does, believes in something called purgatory, which is where you go, say, if you die in a state of sin. So say you've, you were, you, a priest pronounced absolution over you, and then the next day you die in a car wreck and you said something bad to somebody. You've got an unrepentant sin on your soul. Well, if you didn't repent for it, how do you pay for it? And that's where this idea of purgatory comes in. It's meant to be an idea of uh, temporary punishment. It's actually part of heaven, historically. What, they would, what the idea was that you could pay money, you could pay, I don't know, pay $1,500, whatever the number would be, for money, you'd pay money to, get, to save somebody that you knew who you thought was in purgatory from there and get them right into heaven. My seminary professor used to say, yeah, you'd give them, you'd, you'd give them money to get granny off the griddle. <laughs> and so, and it's, again, it sounds ridiculous to us, but the idea here is if in the, the idea of purgatory, of this sort of limbo state where you could go either way, you throw a couple bucks in the plate and, you know, your loved ones are freed of their sin but because the Pope would grant an indulgence, meaning he had the authority to say that that person was no longer in purgatory. Does that make sense? Now, um, I will say this. Let me just kind of say a side note about purgatory. Uh, purgatory is actually, uh, in that understanding of it being sort of a halfway house, is a, a, a corruption both, both of Roman Catholic theology and even Anglican theology of what this might be. Let me submit this to you, and it's a controversial thing, but I'll just give it to you as food for thought. Uh, here's a question for you. If you go to heaven, can you become holier once you're there? Are you perfect when you get there, or can you become better when you get there? It's an open question. Now, and C.S. Lewis actually argues this in one of, in somewhere in one of his books, that purgatory is actually, unlike the Roman abuses of the Middle Ages, where you paid money to buy an indulgence, purgatory could be a part of heaven, where it's not like flames and pitchforks and all that jazz, but it is a part of heaven where a person is trained in righteousness, right? You become a stronger, holier person. Is that possible? Well, if so, then you are being cleansed from sin or made stronger. You're still saved, right? But you may be becoming holier. And again, nobody really knows the answer to that question. You could argue both ways. Yeah, yeah. Then let, me, let me just be very clear about something important. The, the Roman Catholic view was kind of like this. So you had heaven and hell, right? Hang on a minute. No, it's not. Well, maybe still, but that's not what Jesus says. So you had heaven and hell, and the Roman view was, okay, here's somebody who's died and is in this state, which could go either way, right? And you throw a couple bucks in the plate, and you kind of push them over the finish line and push them this way. Okay? That is patently not true. You are either saved or not saved when you die, period. The, question, the open question is this. Once you're here, once you're in heaven, can you be made holier? Can you be cleansed from further sin? It's a good question. And you can argue it both ways. Uh, but Don, you had a comment. Well, if you take the, if you take the, let me, let me, let me change the terms on you for a second. If you take the term purgatory is such a loaded word, take that out for a second. Don't think of that because you're thinking this one. You're thinking the could go either way thing. If you look at it as could you grow in holiness in heaven? And there's different scriptures you could argue this one way or the other. 
can you grow in holiness in heaven? And the answer is yes, then you're just becoming holier. Does that make sense? Like, get the purgatory idea out of your mind. Because what the Romans did is took this idea and changed it to make it this halfway house in the Middle Ages. So this idea that you can become whole, I mean, I mean put it this way. If you are, because here's the thing, you are made, you are saved by faith in Jesus Christ, right? Purely. Um, can you grow in holiness after, you know, post-mortem? That's a good question. If the answer is no, then this is a mood issue. If the answer is yes, then the idea bears merit. And C.S. Lewis talks about this. Maybe we'll bring this up someday in a study. Um, but it's an open question. Sorry. Anyway, yes, yeah, Susan. It's all speculation. I'm just saying, can you, be, can, yeah, but can you become, can you be made holier once you're in heaven? No, once you're in heaven, you can't sin, I'm imagining. Because you're in the presence of God, and there's no way you would... And A, and a you, know the, you know the consequences of all of your actions. And if you're in God's presence, you know that if you do this, you're not going to do that because God's right there. So, but I, wanna get, I don't want to get sidetracked on this. This is a w wicked rabbit trail, uh, rabbit hole. So just be brief, please, Paul. I just wanted to comment. Right. That's exactly my point. That's exactly my point. In, in, our, in our Eucharistic prayer from right one, it's not to look at it. The, uh, the prayer for the whole state of Christ's church, which is in the original Anglican prayer books, says that they might grow. I'd have to look at it. But the, the, the concept there is that people in heaven grow in holiness. And I'm just having a, 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 a brain moment right now. But that's exactly where that comes from. And there's scriptural warrant for it. You can argue it both ways. Yeah, Janie's comment is when Jesus is resurrected at the, at the resurrection, they didn't recognize him because he was in a a resurrected body in whatever state we will have when we are resurrected, which won't die and won't age and won't be affected by the brokenness of this world. What's that like? I haven't the foggiest idea, except that Jesus was right in front of them and didn't recognize him physically. So you look different, but then the way they recognize him is because he uses their name. Thomas, Mary, yeah. So again, that's way off on the side, but we're gonna be talking about that in Eastertide. Another rabbit trail. And it's all good stuff. I just want to get through this material. So let's look at some of the famous... Okay, so the church in England was basically uh, came out of this idea of political... Uh, initially, out of political uh, influence and trying to maintain the sovereignty of the king over and against the Bishop of Rome. The, king Henry VIII was actually a devout Roman Catholic and was given the title Defender of the Faith. Know why? Because Henry VIII was writing... He's a very bright guy, was writing treatises against the heresy of Lutheranism. <laughs> so, so King Henry was very much a pro-Rome guy. The problem was he, well, we get into that in a second with this whole marital situation, but here are some famous Protestants from the continent, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Hudrick Swingley, John Wycliffe, John Huss, and we're not going to get into that today, but just sort of some names. So Reformation in England, let's look at that. Uh, what happened again, the idea in England initially, that's Henry VIII, the, the, the Reformation in England started as a political movement. Remember, the king is the supreme ruler of England, placed there by God to keep the order, to punish for the, for the punishment of wickedness and vice. He's not a spiritual head, but he is there put by God to, to maintain order and you know, for, the well for the common welfare. That's the, uh, that's the concept of the king's job in England and even in the monarchies of the, of the Middle Ages. The king was a supreme ruler, whether you're Henry or whomever. And then Henry VIII was given the title Defender of the Faith. But there was a problem. What might that problem be? 
He's a king, and he needs what? An heir. Now, he has one, and she becomes queen later. Uh, but he wanted a king. He wanted a son. And this is, where, this is where the situation gets a little unusual. Can somebody grab a Bible for me? Actually, you know what? I'll just grab this one right here. Henry VIII was married to Catherine of Aragon, who was the daughter of Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain. I think they're the same ones that went to Christopher Columbus, right? Yes. Aren't they? Yeah. Uh, and, and she was the niece of the king of the Holy Roman Empire, which was basically Germany. So Catherine of Aragon, like a lot of these marriages in the day, were, was a very influential family, right? She was very well placed, and she had a lot of political cred. Spain, at this point, was a very powerful empire, right, as you know. Uh, Christopher Columbus went to her mom and dad to get permission to come over here, or go to China, I guess is what he was looking for. Uh, anyway, Henry marries Catherine of Aragon. He's like, okay. And then he divorced her, right, because he wanted an heir. Well, yes, but there's more to it. Again, Henry uh, had a, um, had a, uh, had a, had a, wasn't exactly a great guy, but he wasn't as rotten of a scoundrel as everybody makes him out to be. Let me read to you why. So Henry is having children with Catherine of Aragon and is not bearing any boys. This is what and Henry, Henry goes, wait a minute, maybe, I, maybe my marriage is cursed. He, Henry had to go to the Bishop of Rome, to the Pope, to get, prop, to get permission to marry her in the first place. Why? Because she had been married to his brother. I've forgotten his name. If anybody knows, you can shout it out. Catherine of Aragon had been married to King Henry's brother. He gets permission from the Pope to do that, and they marry, and they don't have any male heirs. And Henry begins to wonder, have I done something terribly wrong? And he actually points to this scripture in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 21. If a man takes his brother's wife, it is impurity. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness they shall be childless. So the point being, Henry goes to the Pope and says, uh, whatever his name was, I've made a terrible mistake. I think I'm not having any success with Catherine of Aragon because I have violated God's word. I need an annulment. Anybody know what an annulment is? An annulment, okay. So the Henry VIII appeals to the Bishop of Rome because that's what everybody had to do at the time, because Rome had assumed authority. And he asked the Bishop of Rome for an annulment of his marriage. An annulment means that you've entered into a marriage, either one of the two parties is unable to be married, either from a prior marriage or they're intoxicated, or there's something going on there, or the marriage is entered into in a, in a way which the marriage couldn't be consummated. So the annulment says that the marriage never took place because of some hindrance. Is that clear? Okay. This changes the game a little bit, and this is why I'm kind of dialing in on this quite substantially. Henry appeals to the Bishop of Rome for an annulment, and he claims Leviticus chapter 20, verse 21, as the basis for the fact that he's done a mistake and he needs to, the marriage is not godly. Now, in any other circumstance, the Bishop of Rome would have granted the annulment. It was a perfectly legitimate grounds for it, uh, and it would have been granted, however, Catherine of Aragon has mom and dad or the king and queen of Spain, and her, she's the, her uncle is the king of the Holy Roman Empire. You, may, you see where I'm going with this? And so the Bishop of Rome says, uh, no. And Henry goes, what am I going to do? So he's then, and Henry says, well, wait a minute. 
Oh, here's his six wives, by the way. There's quite a few of them. Um, and we'll, someday maybe we'll do a deep dive on this because it's fascinating, but it's kind of smarmy too. <laughs> um, but Henry VIII says, wait a minute, why in the world am I appealing to the Bishop of Rome? I'm the King of England. I have bishops in England. Why am I appealing to the Bishop of Rome for the authority to annul a marriage which has clearly got grounds for it? So what does he do? He says, I'm not going to deal with the Bishop of Rome anyway. Why, is, why am I going to him for jurisdiction? I'm going to appeal to the Archbishop of York. I'm sorry, the Archbishop of York made the appeal to Rome on his behalf. There's uh, Ferdinand and Isabella, by the way. Po uh, Henry VIII appeals to Rome. Rome says no. And then Henry says, well, wait a minute. Why am I going to Rome in the first place? I'm going to appeal to the Archbishop of Canterbury, whom grants the annulment because the Archbishop of Canterbury has spiritual headship over England. York and Canterbury are both sort of tied into each other. So as a result of that, that's Thomas Cramner. You'll hear about him some other day when we dive into uh, the Protestant Reformation in more detail. But Cramner was the Archbishop of Canterbury, put there by the Bishop of Rome, incidentally. Uh, Henry appeals to him and says, I need an annulment. Cramner says, sure, grants him one. And as a result, the Bishop of Rome excommunicates Henry and Cranmer, and the Church of England is separated from the Church of Rome. Does that make sense? It's a little different than all of your, uh, some of your friends who are Roman Catholics will, pay, and they don't, just, people just don't understand it. The point I want you to come away from this is that Henry VIII, look, was he a bad guy? Yeah, actually he was in some ways. But the concept here that he recognized, at least from what he said, he recognized that his, uh, his marriage to Catherine of Aragon had been done and encountered a God's will. He asked for an annulment. It was denied. He asked for an annulment based upon prior grounds which would have been given to anybody else. And as a result, he had to appeal to the Archbishop of Canterbury for the annulment which was granted. And that caused the split. The first one, it's restored in a minute. I'll get to that. But the first split is caused by that. Is that clear? It's, is that different than you've been... Okay, Paul, quickly. Well, he, yes, Paul's point is growing up as a Roman Catholic. You hear Anglicans are, their church is founded by a divorced man or who is a, a murderer. And actually, there's more to the story than that, too. The point I want you to see here, to Paul's point, is it's a, little more, it's a little more complicated than that, and it's a little more nuanced, and perhaps Henry was uh, not of such quite uh, evil intent in all this. I mean, remember, he was given the title Defender of the Faith. He took his faith very, very seriously. And the first prayer book, which is in 1549, so the first prayer book is formed. Thomas Cramner was the chief architect of it. We'll get to that someday. Uh, the, the, the first book of common prayer was essentially the Roman Catholic Missal in English. So the Church of England, up until this point, the Mass was in what? Latin. And the Church of England said, no, 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 no. We're going to read Scripture in English, and we're going to pray in English because we're English. <laughs> That's a great idea. So the prayer book is basically the Roman, the first prayer book of 1549, which is the one that Henry VIII had commissioned uh, by Thomas Cremner, is almost ex verbatim the Roman Catholic Mass in English. In fact, if any of you grew up in Latin uh, and going to, as Roman Catholics learning Latin, um, when you say the word uh, Dominus Vobiscum, right? that when you sing it, the Lord be with you. So it's actually noted exactly, it's meant to be a very close marriage between the Roman church, which was as part of the English church, uh, and, and the new prayer book. So Henry dies. 
He is succeeded by Edward VI, who is the son of Jane Seymour. Edward VI was made king at the age of nine. By this time, the Protestant Reformation on the continent, this is only a couple years later, the Protestant Reformation on the continent had really ramped up. And so uh, Henry had become quite infirm and old and eventually died. Henry the, uh, Edward VI becomes the next king. He's nine years old. The people that were very much influenced by the Protestant Reformation said, we got an opportunity here to change this England thing and really get the Reformation off the ground on, on English shores. They get a hold of Henry or Edward VI, and they begin to really influence Edward to go in a Protestant direction. Does that make sense? So Henry VIII was essentially uh, very Roman Catholic in his theology. Edward VI, who is basically a boy, is influenced by the Continental Reformers, the Lutherans, and the Presbyterians to become much more influenced by the, the Continental thinking of, of salvation by faith alone, all these different things, elements of Calvinism. And so in 1552, we have the second prayer book. This is important. I know it sounds boring, but it's important. So 1549 is the first prayer book. 1552 is the second prayer book, which is much, much more Protestant in its theology. You with me? Okay. So uh, Ed Edward, uh, Henry dies. Edward comes along. Edward essentially takes the Church of England in a much more Protestant direction. For example, uh, in, the, in, the, in the 1549 prayer book, the priest would, would hold, up, hold up the host and say, the body of Christ. Amen. In the 1552 book, the priest would say, take this in remembrance that Christ died for you. Do you see the difference? There's a lot of different little things. So Edward, Edward, is, uh, Edward VI, he lives to be 16 years old. He dies of something I've forgotten. And then his uh, Mary I, who was the daughter of the first queen, the first queen, Catherine of Aragon, Mary I reassumes the throne. Anybody know who Mary the Mary I is? She is known. She's named after a cocktail. Uh, she's known as Bloody Mary. She was a staunch Roman Catholic. I mean, imagine. Put yourself in the context. Here you have a king. You've, you've, you're an Englishman or a woman. You've been under the influence of the Roman church since you can remember as a kid. The Church of England is now separated because you love your king and your country, and you're pretty much on board with it, but you don't want things to change too much. And then Henry dies, and Edward comes along, and this whole radical swing towards Protestantism comes in. You with me? And then Edward VI dies at 16, and then Mary comes along, and she says, oh, no, no, we're going back to the Roman church. So this is important, friends. Henry VIII was the initial break. Mary I comes along and reestablishes the church in England under Rome. People don't know that. She uh, was a staunch Roman Catholic. She reunites with Rome. So Henry's breach was reunited by Mary. So Henry did, might have started it, but Mary was, brought it all back together again. And then she is known as Bloody Mary because few things she liked doing more than killing Protestants. Okay? And Protestants are pretty good at killing Catholics too, Roman Catholics. So she takes the throne, she reunites with the Bishop of Rome, England is back under Romanism, under the Roman Church, Archbishop Cramner, the guy who wrote the prayer books, is burned at the stake, and here we are, the Church of England is back under Roman authority, until Mary dies. You with me? Okay, and, I'm, I'm get, and this is going to wrap up pretty quickly. She, and this woman, becomes the queen, you've heard of her, Elizabeth I. She is a genius. 
Because what's happened in the past 10 years is your country has gone from Roman Catholic to way Protestant. People are dying, being burned at the stake. Families are being rounded up. Then it goes back to Roman Catholic. Mary uh, goes after the Protestants. And Elizabeth inherits this country which is deeply, deeply divided. Makes sense, right? The Reformation on the, on the continent is still kind of gurgling along. She says, you know what, I, I gotta, I'm the queen. I've got to run the temporal affairs of the church. I'm the queen. What am I going to do? And so she breaks with Rome again, the church in England. I'm the monarch. I'm not going to answer to the Bishop of Rome. I'm going to answer to the Archbishop of Canterbury, as England had always done. And she breaks with Rome, and she comes up with something called the Via Media, which means what? Anybody know? The Middle Way. Now, this is an often misunderstood understood term. But what she proposes is essentially to take the 1549 prayer book, which is Henry's, the very Catholic-y one, and Edward VI, which is the very Protestant one, and kind of smash them together. So, for example, in the 1662, which is the official book even today in England, the priest says, the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for thee, preserve thy body and soul unto everlasting life. That's from the 1549. And then the priest continues, take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for you and feed on him in your hearts by faith. That's the 1552. So what she does is she just takes them and combines it. It's brilliant. And, and so what she does is she actually, it's called the Elizabethan Settlement. And she's able to, and it's a miracle. There's a really good movie about this, actually. Uh, a couple of good stories have done about her. She's known as the Virgin Queen. That's a matter of debate, but she never married. Uh, but there's some really good movies about her. She's a brilliant leader and a brilliant theologian and very devout. She uh, was able to bring together the Papists and the Protestants, and she, and she formulated something which was known as Reformed Catholicism, or you might say Primitive Catholicism, Catholicism before uh, 1054. You see where this is going? I'm trying to paint a big, big brush here. Uh, I, met, I mentioned this last week. Uh, Father Vernon Staley has a great book called The Catholic Religion. It's all about this. And he has a, a really wonderful quote. It says that Anglicanism under Elizabeth, she's the final break, not Henry. She's the one who is the architect of Anglicanism as it currently is understood today. Staley, in reference to her, says that the Elizabethan settlement was uh, made Anglicans the Catholic faith, ready for this, without papal accretions or Protestant subtractions. That's a great quote without papal accretions, meaning the Pope adding stuff to it, to the, to the early church, or Protestant subtractions, taking stuff away like sacraments and things. So again, um, one of Elizabeth's uh, genius moves was the, the words of institution. If you can see here, the, in the 1549 book, the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for thee, preserve thy body and soul unto everlasting life. And the priest would administer the host. In 1552, the priest would hold it up and say, take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for thee and feed on him in thy hearts by faith with thanksgiving. She just takes both of those and, and smashes them together. Anybody here familiar with the 1928 prayer book, which is based on the one that she wrote? It's the last one really based on the one that she wrote. And what the, the words of administration in the 1928 prayer book is that whole big statement. Is that clear? 
So she was brilliant. And again, we don't have the time to go into this today, but she was essentially the architect of the modern idea of Anglicanism. And by the way, most people today in the church, of, in the Episcopal church, will refer to the via media as the way to sort of allow for all sorts of theological novelty, right? This is not the middle way between liberal and conservative, or between high church and low church, or between whatever. It's the via media between European continental Reformation theology and Roman Catholicism. That's the original idea. So just when you hear the word via media thrown around, and you will, and it's a great idea, it just means that Anglican theology can be very comprehensive because we're willing to just kind of rest in what we can prove through scripture and leave the rest of it to sort of personal opinion, like what Don, like what Don was asking a minute ago about purgatory. Does that make sense, everyone? You with me? Okay. Um, results of the Reformation. England became separated from the Church of Rome and in, continues to be. Um, uh, England, the Church of England, now known as the Church of England, is a distinct body, maintains apostolic succession. And here's an interesting nugget we'll get into next time. The Bishop of Rome never disputes that, that the Anglican apostolic succession of the Church of England, which is in 1662 when Elizabeth is there, the Bishop of Rome never disputes that until 1896. Want to know why? Because the Church of England began to expand worldwide with the, with the empire, right? And plant churches all over the place. And the Rome, Rome goes, oh man, we've got to do something about this. Anyway, we'll get into that later. But Anglican orders were not questioned until 1896. We're going to get into that next time. Um, and the, the, the concept within the Church of England is that it's not a new church at all. But it's actually a return to the old church in England prior to the Great Schism, prior to the, the Bishop of Rome uh, getting meddling in affairs there. And again, back to the idea that all bishops are equal. You with me? Um, and then one more quick thing I want to talk about is in the Church of England, you begin to see something known as the uh, high church, low church, and broad church. Anybody heard those expressions before? Okay, so a high, uh, you see the emergence of parties within the Church of England, and it's all fine. What, what makes an Anglican an Anglican is the, is the Scripture and the Book of Common Prayer, right? In other words, we don't have a rigid doctrinal um, uh, catechism. The Roman Catholic Church's catechism is about this thick. It could kill a horse with it. <laughs> our, our, our catechism is very, very narrow. It's in the back of the prayer book. And what unites Anglicans is the way we worship together. So you can believe in transubstantiation in the real presence. You might believe in consubstantiation. You might believe you might be a predestination guy and believe in election. You might be an Arminian and believe in complete human free will. Those things have been debated throughout church history, and they will continue to be debated because there's no clear answer. Anglicans say, no, 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 no. We're not here to be real, real detailed in stuff which is a mystery. Rather, what makes us together is that we worship according to the same liturgy. And there's, there's boundaries, of course, within that. But what unites us is not, a, uh, is not a catechism, but the creeds and scriptures in the prayer book. Does that make sense? And so high church, low church, broad church, basically a high churchman is high emphasis on ministry and liturgy. Low church is primacy on scripture and less emphasis on sacraments. Broad church is sort of the middle of the road. These, these, these terms are kind of, they don't really mean anything anymore. I would call myself, a low, I would call myself an, an evangelical high churchman is what I'd call myself, which is kind of a combination of low church and high church. I don't know, whatever. 
But the, uh, as we'll see next time when the Church of England begins to expand into Africa and all over the world, these parties come into play because the high church party had their guys they would send out, the low churchmen had their guys they would send out, all from the Church of England, all believing the same stuff but with different emphases. And depending upon what country you lived in and whether it was a high church or low church missionaries, the, the province would turn out high church or low church. So for example, Nigeria was, was uh, missionized by the Church Missionary Society, very evangelical low church. The province of Northern Malawi, or Central Africa rather, was missionized by the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel, very Catholic-minded. So it's a cool thing. These are the good old days, right? We could fight about stuff like candles on the altar. <laughs> so, any, uh, any comments or questions? I do have a question. All right. Apostolic yes. Succession. Apostolic succession, yes. We're going to get into that at the last session. Uh, well, I would say, okay, so Janie's point is you can, apostolic succession means you are, you are ordained in succession between a bishop that has apostolic succession, right? So you can be a bishop in apostolic succession, like the Bishop of St. Mark's. He's a friend of mine, actually, but he's not recognized by the Archbishop of Canterbury as an Anglican. So is he a validly consecrated bishop? Sure. But is he an Anglican? No. Does that make, does that make sense? So you could be, you could be a Texan, or a Pennsylvania, and you're both Americans, but you're, you know, you, if, you live in, if you live in Texas, you're a Texan. If you live in Pennsylvania, you're a Pennsylvanian. You can't be in Texas and call yourself a Pennsylvanian. That's a fair point. <laughs> Doug. Yes. I just think it's the... Uh, as I said before, Jesus is an Anglican. <laughs> and the Spanish sailors, some of them, Yeah, I mean, there's a, a lot of great... I would love to do a deep dive in all this. It's just, you know... I got two weeks before the bishop's here, so we got to get through this before. Yes, Don. Yes, that's a good, we're going to get into the Wesleys. The problem was the Wesleys wanted to missionize and plant churches in, in the western part of the United States, which back then was Ohio, right, or Pennsylvania, and they needed more priests, and they needed a bishop. And to get more priests, you got to have a bishop. The problem is that bishops were all in England because the, the crown did not want to put bishops here because they didn't want the church of, to get too far out ahead of itself. And so the Wesleys said, you know what? We're not going to wait for this. We're just going to ordain guys and send them out. So again, well-intentioned. Well, anyway, it's another whole, that's another whole thread. But yes, you're right. So anyway, thanks, friends. Appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. If you enjoyed our conversation, we ask that you like, subscribe, or share this message. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity Episcopal Church, visit us online at trinityvero.org and follow us on Facebook.